This is Authors in Focus. Welcome back to the Authors in Focus podcast. I've been doing a series of uh, really cool interviews over the last couple of weeks, um, focusing on authors that may have gotten their start in uh, the grimdark fantasy genre. And uh, one of them who I've been really excited to interview for a long time, one of my favorite authors, is here today, Rob Hayes. How you doing, Rob? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing all right. Still a bit hot living in the UK, so uh, we had like 40-odd degrees yesterday, which, well, 40 degrees C. don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. It's really hot, though. Well, I, I'm in Canada, so we use Celsius, too, and we hit 40 degrees yesterday in Toronto. Yeah, so it, it, I melted. I was just a puddle on the floor. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, I, I like, you know, for me, like, between 18 and 22 degrees is my happy temperature. Anything higher than 27, and I'm not doing too well. <laughs> I, I function a lot lower than that. Like, 10 degrees is about my yeah. maximum for, yes, I like this. No, I hear you. And people think that because I come from Canada, it's cold all the time. Like, there, there are people that, that, that actually think that, but we get it crazy hot in the summer here. But anyway, it's, it's very cool to have you here to talk about your book, Paternus. Not that's Dirk Ashton. We do get confused quite a lot. You know, there's a question, am I Dirk Ashton or am I Michael R. Fletcher? Nobody knows. We're all, yeah. When I had him on last week, I spun that one as well. But I like to start these (laughs) these interviews off with a couple of fun questions before we get into the heavier stuff. I ask everybody this question right off the bat because I just like it. Uh, If you could have a drink with any author, living or dead, who would it be and why? Um, I'm going with, I, you know what, I'd go with Chris Wooding, um, because I am a massive Chris Wooding fan. I absolutely love his writing, and I've never got to speak to him, so I'd love to have a drink with him. Oh, cool. For me, I think probably James Joyce. That would have to be a dead, not a living. Um, <laughs> but uh, That's fine, a bit of necromancy. It just adds spice to the uh, to the drinks. Right. I wonder what he would think if, if he got called in to have a drink with me. Horrendously, that would be a strange one. So you've got a lot of stuff, a lot of material. Um, You've got the First Earth Saga, which you know is encompasses you know a a series uh, ties that bind, and then a bunch of kind of smaller series that are set within the same world with different characters. Uh, You've got your Mortal Technique series, uh, the War Eternal series, and now you've got your new book, Titan Hoppers, which. You know, and, and all this stuff is kind of, you play around sort of with different genres. So I want to start at the beginning. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer for a living, where you got that buzz and said, this is what I need to do for the rest of my life? And what was the uh, the early journey that, that led to your first published novel, which, um, or at least, I mean, I don't know what you published before The Ties That Bind, but uh, I guess what led to that being released, which is what a lot of people uh, the series that a lot of people uh, know you for and, and started their relationship with your work with. Okay, so I, I, I've been writing short stories and fan fiction since I was, God, I don't know now, like eight years old, I, really young. But, you know, back in those days, I didn't know how to write. So it was just 
walls of text and it was terrible. Um, I wrote I wrote a Star Wars short story that was just an excuse for lightsaber fight scenes. But uh, it wasn't until I went to Fiji to uh, work as a uh, marine researcher that I, I decided that I actually wanted to, to write for a living because I, I basically took this little journal out with me, this little leather-bound journal, which I, I fully expected to, to write in every day to, you know, sort of like chronicle how my my, my trip over in, in, in Fiji had been. But instead, I used it to write short stories of a world that I was creating, which later came to be First Earth, basically. So that was the moment I when I was... Sitting on a on a beach on a desert island in Fiji with a little bit of bound journal, a pair of headphones in my ears, writing stories in the, in the, on the pages, and I just thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. Um, and I think I was like 26 or 27 at the time. I'd been through so many jobs I couldn't even count already. I'd been to university, all sorts. And yeah, so I I, I came back from Fiji and just focused my my attention on, okay, now I need to write books basically, um, not just short stories, which was quite different. So I got myself another job uh, working in, I think it was at HSBC or something, it was a bank anyway, uh, and then I came home from that every single night and then spent about four or five hours just writing. The first book I wrote, well, they were all sitting first earth at the time, but the first book I wrote, uh, that turned into a trunk novel, I just threw that aside and went, no, no, that's not good enough, we'll write another one instead. And then the second book I wrote turned into The Heresy Within, which is the first book I did publish. So then I foolishly decided, you know what, the best way to do this, or perhaps not foolishly, decided the best way to do this is to write all three books in the series in one go and then release them all on the same day. So that's what I did. I spent like three years working my ass off, writing as soon as I came home from work, barely seeing the uh, the light of day. And then when they were ready, published all three books in one. And obviously, I mean, um, that's a series that, uh, introduced me to your work because I heard uh, I heard a lot of good things about it and at the time I was devouring Grimdark like I, I um, come from a, a background a comic book background graphic novel I guess background and a lot of the stuff that I loved was kind of the the Vertigo stuff I don't know I don't know how familiar familiar you are with uh, with comics but Vertigo being uh, an imprint of DC Comics that brought in a lot of UK based writers like Garth Dennis and Grant Morrison and Alan Moore. Yeah, I don't, I don't know much about comics, but um, I've, I've heard of Vertigo because uh, we actually interviewed uh, Mike Carey on uh, the Wizards, Warriors and Words podcast just last week. I'm not sure if the episodes have actually... Yeah, no, the first one's definitely aired. And uh, yeah, he was telling us a bit about Vertigo. So. Right, yeah, well, he got it. Yeah, he got his start writing uh, Lucifer, which I guess inspired the TV series. And that was a spin-off series off of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. That's kind of where Mike got got his start in comics before he started writing novels. I was supposed to interview him as well, and, and it fell through. I'm, I'm hoping to still get that opportunity. But uh, I noticed as I started becoming more exposed to indie fantasy that there were uh, a lot of writers that, you know, like writers like Mark Lawrence and Joe Abercrombie and uh, to some extent, Steven Erickson, that were writing kind of this really, really edgy, dark, irreverent, sweary fantasy. And it just really struck a chord with me and, and I really loved it. And you uh, you were one of the authors I discovered at that time that uh, sort of hit that chord for me. 
What do you feel about the, uh, the the grim dark label? Like I've talked to a couple of authors. I, I mentioned this to uh, Ed McDonald a couple of weeks ago, and then Fletcher last week about how grim dark used to very much be a thing. Anna Smith Spark was the queen of grim dark and stuff like that. Whereas now I, I kind of feel like authors are shunning the pigeonhole a little bit and kind of not wanting to necessarily be referred to as grim dark anymore. Like where do you stand with the whole grim dark label? for, you know, this type of dark fantasy that you started out in? Personally, I feel that the genre label of Grimdark, it's too diluted. It doesn't actually mean anything anymore. For the simple fact that nobody could ever under, like, agree on what, what it did actually mean. Um, you know, some people are just like, ah, yes, that means there's lots of blood and guts and swearing and that. And other people are just like, no, no, it, it's more about the, the sort of like the theme of the world being, you know, grey and, and everybody's morally questionable and other people are different things. And everybody seemed to have a different idea of what Grimdark actually meant. And I, I think it got to the point where because nobody could decide there was never actually any genre label. So it, it doesn't really mean anything. But I, I think a lot of people, uh, authors have started moving away from it because it's it's not really what a lot of readers are actually wanting um, at the moment. Much like most trends, a lot of readers are moving on to, OK, I want something a bit happier or I want something a bit you know more fun or something like that. So I don't think Grimdark as a, as a label is selling as well as it used to. So I think people are mostly moving away and just saying, no, no, it's just it's just fantasy. It's just dark fantasy. Um, whereas before they'd have been jumping on going, yep, definitely Grimdark, I'm Grimdark. But personally, I, I don't feel like I've ever written specifically Grimdark. I, I think that my first Earth series could definitely fit into the realm of Grimdark in that it is very much a shitty world, a crapsack world full of shitty people doing terrible things to each other. But at the same time, it's it's not really about the shittiness. It's about hope. It's about finding the glimmers of humanity, even surrounded by so much shit, basically. And that's, it's it's not really what a lot of people want out of Grimdark, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I got similar answers from, from other people that I've asked, so I kind of figured that You'd be leaning in, in a similar direction. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of your inspiration that got you into writing. I mean, like the adage, every every poet is a thief. Uh, nobody ever goes into writing anything with the intention of directly plagiarize, plagiarizing. But, you know, there are only so many original ideas. And obviously there's a ton of inspiration out there, specifically uh, your Mortal Technique series. Never Die, um, I remember reading it and just being blown away by, first of all, how different it was to everything else I was reading at the time. You know, I don't come from a, a much of a, a manga background. I've never really um, been into uh, anime or anything uh, like that. You know, I haven't really, uh, you know, so it, it was new to me. To me, it was just a really cool Eastern-oriented fantasy series that had tons of mad plot twists that blew my mind. But clearly there was, you know, there, you, you had a lot of influences in that series. So can you talk a little bit about that series and, and you know, what inspired you, you know, and how it's different than, than a lot of your other writing? Because I think a lot of people, you know, I, I saw Never Die on a lot of lists of best of books when it came out. And then you wrote the other ones afterwards, which from what I understand, they're all set in the same world, but they're not direct sequels to Never Die. Am I correct? 
Yeah, the idea is they're all set in set in the same world, but they're all completely standalone stories. So right. um, there, there may be you know crossovers with certain characters appearing in one and then appearing in another, and events you know of uh, a previous book um, being mentioned or influencing the events of you know future books. But you could pick up uh, Spirits of Vengeance, the third one, and read it without having read Never Die, uh, the first one, and you'd be absolutely fine. As to the the influences. Um, they're pretty varied. With Never Die, it was very much influenced by sort of uh, martial arts cinema. Sort of a lot of things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is probably the most well-known one, at least here in the uh, in the West. And then like, you know, Hero, House of Flying Daggers, all of those, plus a whole lot of ones which most people have probably never heard of. Um, which I absolutely loved, and they've, they've formed a massive part of what has influenced me over the years. I remember just staying up past my bedtime because, you know, like it, it, in England, you have to wait until midnight before you could watch any of those films. Back when I was a kid, you'd sort of like get to midnight and then Channel 4 would play all sorts of uh, weird things that they wouldn't play during the day. So you'd stay up till midnight just so you could you could watch a, an anime or a martial art film. And some of those really influenced me sort of like growing up, influenced my imagination. So there was definitely a lot of a lot of that sort of inspiration went into Never Die. And then there was also lots of computer game inspiration as well, funnily enough. Uh, Never Die started out as, the idea of it at least, it started out as a bit of a lit RPG in my head. So with lit RPG, it's, it's a book about a game or about people playing a computer game, basically. And it's usually focused around sort of like this RPG role-playing game. But in my head, I had... What if you focused it more around a, a mobile, uh, uh, which is a mobile battle arena, things like League of Legends or, or Dota, with characters who could die and then be reborn and continue the fight? And that was where the original sort of like idea of Never Die came from. And it progressed way past that. And I decided oh, I didn't like the idea of a lit RPG type thing anymore anyway. Right. So I made it very different for that. But yeah, so the, the actual inspirations for Never Die were really wide and varied. And as I moved on with the series, I branched out into sort of like a few other things. Like Pawn's Gambit was very much influenced by a sort of classical Chinese uh, fantasy journey to the West. And also Clash of the Titans, funnily enough. <laughs> There's a lot of Clash of the Titans in Pawn's Gambit. I kind of mixed the two inspirations there. And Spirits of Vengeance is very much influenced by a whole host of, of manga or anime that have just stuck with me over the years. I absolutely loved them and wanted to write a bit of a... A homage to them, and that's that's pretty much what the Multiple Techniques series is. It's it's a bunch of homages, <laughs> things that I absolutely love that I just wanted to write a, a love letter to, basically. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I mean, that's kind of like my entire 13-book co-written series that I completed recently, which kind of goes into a little bit of a game-lit lit RPG concept, too, except instead of being in a video game, these are characters that are being written by the writers who are basically the gods or the deities of the universe and they can shape these characters worlds any way they want to but at the beginning the characters don't realize they're characters in a story and it takes like a couple of books to even get there so kind of like the free guy concept except instead of being a video game it's a story and i just threw in like my homages to quentin tarantino and kevin smith and mike judge and monty python and and you know all the comedy that i've I've always loved uh, and the directors I loved growing up. So, I, I mean, I got a lot of that when I read it and I, I never die and I thought it was great. So now I have to read the other ones because they sound bigger and even broader in scope. So that's that's cool. So I've got to check those out. <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely got a lot broader in scope. Never Die was just this sort of like flash of inspiration I had and I went bang, right, doing it. And then uh, 
um, as, as I sort of decided, okay, I can turn this into a series. I definitely sort of branched out and made them made them bigger and less. In some ways, they're less focused, um, but they are still very much sort of like focused around the quest. There's more to them. I, I sort of I wasn't rushing to the end. Like never dies a bit of a, a headlong rush. It's that focused. There's no no wasted words whatsoever. Nice. Okay, now we're going to get to Titan Hoppers, but I want to kind of go chronological here. Um, started reading The War Eternal. I read the first book. My the, my reason why I, it's always like the first book is not because I'm not loving the books, because I'm, I'm absolutely loving the books. I just barely have any time to read. So, you know, when I get excited about something, I'll usually read like a book one, and then it'll take me a while to, to get to the next one. But War Eternal, Razor's Edge, first book, awesome. D- definitely different. Like, one of the things I noticed was um, it didn't quite have it was a lot. It was a much more serious. I would almost go so far as to say much more uh, mature story. You're writing first person from the perspective of a female character, which is different than you know what you had done before. How was that for you? I I asked a lot of male authors because one of the things I've I've struggled with as, as a writer as well is writing from a perspective that isn't me, uh, and and writing for writing a full series, long series from the voice of a young female character is something that's always inspired me when male writers especially are able to do that well. What was that like for you? What was, what was your, what was your experience like, you know, finding that voice and, and, uh, and creating this character in the series? <laughs> I actually found it really easy. I, I loved it. I fell into it. I had this idea for, for Along the Razor's Edge of sort of the, the idea of this 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 person trapped in well sent to prison and and the you know, the entire book spent underground in this deep underground prison um, and when I was sort of getting into planning it as much as I do plan anything um, I had the idea that okay I'll write it from a, the perspective of a young woman and I'm going to try doing it in first person and the voice just it just appeared Esker the the main character who's the entire thing's written from her perspective just appeared in my head. And she was so loud and <laughs> brash and fully formed straight from the get go that it was just it was easy and an absolute joy to write. She's not always a, a, a joy to experience, but <laughs> uh, she was definitely a joy to write. So, yeah, um, a lot of male authors sometimes say like I really struggle with female cats and I, I don't know. I, I don't. And especially not with Veska. She just appeared fully formed in my head so for me that that one was incredibly easy to write and i it's going to be a shame i'm I'm actually writing the last book in the series at the moment it's one of those where you're sort of like oh god i'm going to be saying saying goodbye to her at some point and that's going to be terrifying <laughs> it is i just did that two days ago uh, my co-writer and i just said goodbye to a, a 13 book story universe and all the characters we wrote and it was actually a lot more emotional than i thought it would be so yeah, no. Well, the, the characters become a part of you as much as sort of like you are a part of them. They really you know, do. And they are friends. Totally. And so many of my characters are inspired by people in my real life as well. One of them being like a, a grown-up version of my eight-year-old son, the kind of the way I envision him and the way I imagine him. So there's a lot of emotion that goes into that because I really feel like I know the character. How much of your characters, I guess, in your writing are inspired by yourself and people in your personal uh, life? Like I'm talking to more of like the the semi-autobiographical approach where you kind of feel like this is just you writing yourself in this this kind of like fantasy world. Uh, Because I know a lot of people uh, are kind of guilty of doing that. And then some people say, no, I never like I separate my fantasy world from my real life completely and I don't put 
any of myself into it. So where, where are you in that spectrum? I definitely don't, you know, I, I, I don't sort of base any characters on myself at all. That's, that's definitely, not, I, I don't think it's possible to, to write a story and not put bits of yourself in the characters in, in the story. I, I don't see how you'd, you'd possibly do that because your, your entire experience is the things that make you are what is going into the story of what you, you can't, you can't write a book without having some experiences meeting people of them influencing you and you influencing them and, and some of that's always going to go into it you're informed by life by the life that you've lived so there is definitely bits of myself that go into the books so i wouldn't say any of the characters are specifically me but i you know i or any particular person that i know but i always take bits of everybody i've met and and put them into the characters uh sort of traits maybe or you know idiosyncrasies or goals things like that but characters might be a bit of an amalgamation between different people, but they're, they're definitely not a specific person for me. It's just not the way that, that I sort of do things. Like, I know with, with Eska, uh, I could definitely see that there are bits of, of my mother in her. Um, she's defiant to a fault, which is something that my mother's always had a, as a, a major trait. So I would say that definitely ended up in, in the character. But otherwise, she's definitely nothing like my mother. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to move along a little bit to, you know, to talk a little bit about the publishing side of things. At this point, I'm, are, are all your books self-published? Uh, currently, yes. Um, unless you count audio, uh, I have a deal with, uh, Podium with the War Eternal. So they're published by Podium in audio, but the rest of my books, um, at least in ebook form are all self-published. From what I remember, you're working with an agent too now, if that's, if I'm not getting that fact mistaken. Yes, uh, I am agented by John Gerald of the John right. Gerald Literary Agency. Um, he has a couple of full-length books of mine, which he's uh, putting around to uh, publishers. One is, well, they're both quite dark fantasies. One's uh, a very long one. It's like 220,000 words, a proper uh, dark, dark epic fantasy. And the other is more of a, a flintlock military fantasy. And he also deals with my translation rights and the like. Um, so currently Never Die has been published in three different languages, I believe. So he deals with all the translation uh, side of things as well. Nice. So self-publishing, obviously something that I became familiar with only a few years ago, like the wealth of, of indie published books out there. Like to me, it was like if I wanted to read a fantasy book, I would go to my bookstore and I would read whatever was put out by Orbit, Tor, whatnot. I didn't even know that this whole world of, of, of Indian self-published books is an option. And once I discovered it, it was like, you know, hitting the mother load. I discovered so many amazing authors and such amazing quality work. But at the same time, I, I, I also discovered a lot of stuff that, you know, in my opinion, maybe shouldn't have been published. What's your feeling about, about the whole self-publishing um, process and the stigma that has faced it over the years? Um, like, what's your experience been with it so far? I think that it's a it, it can be a treasure trove. There are so many books that would not get published um, by a traditional publisher that are you know, most certainly worth it. I mean, I, I, I know that in the past few years I, I read uh, Sword of Kaigen, which obviously is self-published and is honestly a masterpiece of a novel. That's by M.L. Wang. Um, and the same with the with the Paterna series by Dirk Ashton. I, I could never see a traditional publisher picking that one up, but it's absolutely amazing. It breaks the rules. It does things that it shouldn't be able to do, but it works because Dirk's 
bloody good a writer. So I think that there's self-publishing gives the opportunity for books that either wouldn't be picked up by a, a traditional publisher or perhaps wouldn't work in the traditional publishing sphere. But then there is also the other side of things where, yeah, there are books which maybe weren't ready to be published um, that maybe could have done with a bit longer in editing or the like. Who knows? Uh, that's that's obviously a bit of a, a sort of preference thing. But I think that one of the interesting things about self-publishing and versus traditional publishing is the fact that they have pretty much carved out their own different markets at this point. There is definitely crossover. You especially see it in the sort of like the blogosphere where people will read both self-publishing and traditional publishing. But there are still a vast majority of readers who will only read traditional publishing. But there are also now a vast majority of readers, or at least a vast number of readers, that will only read self-publishing because they'll only read things via Kindle Unlimited and the like. So it's a really interesting sort of dynamic where it's there's now two different markets. Um, and depending on which one you're sort of marketing to, you are, you are often producing a very different type of book. And a lot of that is due to the way that traditional publishing is now chasing specific sort of like, you know, trends and the like, whereas... Self-publishing is this much more varied beast where anything can go. You can find anything. That's that's entirely how lit RPG has basically appeared as a genre. It, it wouldn't exist without self-publishing because it found a market. It found a niche. It found readers wanting that style of content, basically. Yeah, no, that's I, um, and I was going to say, like, in, in, another thing that, that, that to me comes to mind is in a traditional publishing model, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to get um, a series like The War Eternal or a series like, uh, you know, Andy Pelequin's Darkblade Assassin series or a series like J.M.D. Reed's Shadow of the Dragon, which is 12 books all out in one year that are all like 90,000 words. Like, you know what I mean? Like most of these traditional publishers, you know, you're lucky if they'll let you put out two books a year. Most of the time it's it's like a one book a year model. So for people that are looking at Discover an Author and the author is writing high quality stuff and they're also really prolific uh it's excellent for the reader oh absolutely um for for people who can put out books at that sort of rate it's it's definitely a much more uh, you know accessible market a, a lot of the reason that the trad don't do that is because their entire business isn't sort of like set up to produce like you know 12 books from one author so yeah uh if, if you if an author can produce that that level of of, of words basically then uh self-publishing is definitely a, a very useful market for them i don't know how they do it i think it's amazing anyone who can produce that, that many words in a year you're up there like i mean i i, I consider i consider you a, a, a an author that's probably more prolific than most i've only known you for a few years and you've put out like i don't know 12 or 13 books or something like that, which, you know, I would consider you definitely among those examples of prolific authors. I mean, there are some that are taking it to the next level, but, you know, like you and Ben Galley and, you know, there's there's quite a few that probably uh, readers are probably very relieved that they get an opportunity to read all these books within a, a relatively short time frame. I, I can see that. I mean, in reality, I've been publishing now for almost 10 years and I've published 17 books which is it's about on par. I, I can I can write roughly two books a year, um, and those books are varying between sort of a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand words. Um, the longer that you know, if it's a, a longer book, it might take uh, well, it will take longer to write. So I might produce fewer books in a year. But yeah, I so I I wouldn't say 
two books in a year is sort of prolific personally. I know I, I get called prolific a lot. I don't, personally, I don't think it's true. A lot of it is dealing with, I had a much slower publishing schedule when I was um, first setting out and I had, I built up a nice backlog of books. I think in 2017, um, I had like five books out and four ready to go. It's a bit less now, but so yeah, I, personally, I wouldn't call myself prolific, but I can produce two books a year, which for me is enough. <laughs> Sounds good enough to me. So kind of, this is going to be like a, like a double question because we haven't talked about your newest work, which is, uh, this is different than anything you've done. Kind of a pr- progression sci-fi story, uh, Titan Hopper. So this is going to be my what's next uh, question. What do you have planned for the next couple of years? And I guess we can begin with ti- with uh, Titan Hoppers. You know, tell our community a little bit about it, what they can expect, because it's definitely um, different. Again, I mean, it's, you know, Never Die was, was also different than what people had read of yours before Never Die. And this is another new, uh, an attempt at something completely different. So tell everybody a little bit about Titan Hoppers and, and you know, what makes it really cool and why they should be grabbing it right now. Uh, and I guess go into a little bit about some of these other projects that you have planned for after this, you know, within the next couple of years. Uh, so, yeah, Titan Hoppers is a progression science fantasy. Uh, so sort of progression books are things like uh, Will White's Cradle or uh, Phil Tucker's Bastion or uh, John Bierce's, uh Mage Errant. Um, and it's this sort of like idea of this uh, of a character that's continuously getting more powerful and facing more powerful enemies, more powerful challenges. And there's usually quite distinct levels of power as they, they sort of like progress, basically, which just sounded like a lot of fun to me, especially as someone who's comes from a sort of background of watching anime his entire life. Um, so I thought I'd give it a go. And uh, it's a science fantasy as well. So it's set on uh, a fleet of, of sort of almost derelict spaceships that, that orbit these giant space titans and they have to sort of hop across onto these titans and and salvage parts from food and whatever they can but these titans are filled with with monsters and traps and all sorts so the idea of it was kind of like uh, uh if anybody's ever played warhammer 40,000 there's these things called space hulks which are these absolutely massive space dreadnoughts of like ships that are the size of planets and i had the idea of having that and then having a sort of migrant fleet moving alongside it sca- scavenging from it which was a lot of fun and as for what's coming next, um, well, there's going to be a sequel to Titan Hoppers at some point. Um, that's that's definitely in the works. I'm writing that one hopefully very soon. Um, that's going to be a whole series. Uh, what else? I have the the end to the War Eternal. The fifth and final book in the War Eternal series is coming out at the end of the year. To be quite emotional. And then next year I will be releasing. Herald, which is my new dark epic fantasy series, um, which is based around a magic system where people eat angels. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I heard you talking about that one, saying you thought it was one of the best things you've ever written, if I'm not correct. I do. I, I believe it's it's currently the best book I've ever written. And I'm, I'm editing it at the moment, and I can say, yeah, no, it's pretty good. <laughs> well, if you want to put me on the list for um, alpha, beta, whatever you want to call it, I'm definitely down. I was intrigued when I read about that, and that sounds really awesome. So, uh, oh, yeah, it sounds like you've got uh, you got a, a productive couple of awesome years ahead of you for readers to look forward to as well. So um, good luck on all that stuff. Um, I like to end all my interviews with this question because I think this is really important because there's so many people getting into writing and there's so many people 
that have write a book on their bucket lists of things they want to do. Uh, what one piece of advice can you offer to new and aspiring writers that uh, they can take with them when, I guess, starting or continuing on their journey? I would say one of the biggest pieces of advice is, and probably the most useful piece of advice is, there's there's no way to there's no one way to skin a cat. Basically, there are so many different ways to go about writing your book, and you can hear authors will give you so much advice, um, and other people will give you advice. There's, there's like some people will say you have to write every single day. Some people will say, oh, you have to go take a creative writing course and and all of that lot. And yeah, it works for some people, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work for you. So I think the best way to, to go about it is to find your own way and, you know, however that, that works out for you. For me, uh, it was, yeah, I had a, a full time job and, uh, I, I wrote in every spare hour I could and I wrote, you know, multiple books before I ever published one. For some people, it's, nope, they just, they, you know, they've got spare time and they think, ah, I've got this idea. They write it and it's perfect. They publish it. Other people, yeah, they'll, they'll go to, to university and while they're there, they'll, they'll learn about the craft and, and they'll come up with an idea and they'll write it. So it, yeah, there's, there's no one way to do it. So find your own way. And while there are bits of advice that people will give you, which can be useful, don't take any of them as gospel. Right. Yeah. And just to add to that, there are people that I know that hold themselves to really ridiculous standards in terms of writing output, like just because they know somebody who can write, put out 10 books a year, they feel like if they're only putting out one book a year, somehow they're failing. I think, you know, if you if you let that inner saboteur show up and, and tell you that you're doing something wrong, it's going to hammer you down before you even start. Um, I think that there are different different levels of accomplishment, different types of accomplishment. Everybody, like you said, has their different uh, writing rituals and, and output levels that they can handle, but it, it's all an accomplishment. You know, if you can get a book out there and actually put your word out and, and, and put it out to the world, it's an accomplishment. And I think that's the attitude you have to go into if you're doing anything creative. Absolutely. Um, yeah, never, never try and compare yourself to, to other people. That's that way lies madness. And, uh, yeah, just, just writing a book is a major accomplishment. So if you have managed it, well done. <laughs> you deserve to have yourself a drink or some ice cream or something because bloody hell, it's, it's hard work and well done. Definitely. Much agree. Uh, Rob, where can people find you, uh, online if they want to find out more about you, delve into your, uh, worlds and, and just get to know more about your work? I'm on Facebook. Uh, I have a Facebook page, which is The Heresy Within. Uh, I named it after my debut book. Uh, or I'm on Twitter at Rob of the Haze. Where else am I? Uh, I'm on a podcast called Wizards, Warriors and Words with Michael R. Fletcher, Dirk Ashton and uh, Jed Hearn, which you can find on Spotify and all sorts of uh, other podcasty places. I don't know what you they must, all are, to be honest. You, you must be really busy having to be three people. It's it's really hard work. You have to, you know, constantly uh, move the puppets while talking. Hard enough to be one person, so I can only imagine how difficult that would be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah um, it's, a, it's a bit mad, that podcast, to be honest. But, hey, go and check it out. Oh, no, I, I, I would love to. I actually didn't. I think I, I, I saw something, but I didn't realize it was a regular thing. I thought it was it was just a one-off thing that I was watching. Like I, I, So I, I would definitely like to discuss more about that and find out find out more about that because i'll definitely tune in so if i cut you off did you have anywhere else i can't remember i i probably do to be honest i forget all my social media things i'm on lots of social media there we go <laughs> ah, i'll tell you what website i've got a website you can find me at www.robjhays.co.uk 
There you go. Check it out. <laughs> well, Rob, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you. Sounds like you got some awesome and fascinating stuff coming out for people to check out. Uh, make sure community listening, you check out Rob J. Hayes. Uh, we'll post uh, all your links in the description and on the blog once we post this interview. And best of luck with everything in the future. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Ah, thanks. It's been a bit of pleasure. All right, Rob. Take care. Cheers. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at authorsinfocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at fantasy-focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted. <laughs>